I talk to a lot of um, pastor friends of mine and and pastor acquaintance acquaintances of mine, and I'm most blessed because you lo- you all let me know every day um, how much I'm loved and my family is loved, and uh, that is a that is a great gift. So it's not just Pastor Appreciation Day or month. You you do that every single week, and uh, I am most blessed. When asked me, he's like, "Are you going to be able to preach after that?" I said, "I want to give it a go." But I appreciate the I appreciate this very much, and just pray for other pastors that don't get this. They get very discouraged, and that's why a lot of pastors only last about three and a half years at a church. And uh, I'm we're, I'm trying to bring up the average, but that's what. Uh, just pray for our pastors. So we're going to be in Mark chapter six, uh, looking at verses thirty to uh, to forty four, and we're going to be talking about a piece about where Jesus came with compassion. And if that's how Jesus is supposed to be, and Jesus is living in us, then we would do well to model that. Uh, I I fear that over the last few years, especially with COVID, and then now we have all these political ads that are coming out, and just just the sway in the culture, that sometimes we as Christians, we we tend to get so frustrated at the path of how things are going, that our compassion for those that disagree with us or don't believe in what we believe or may not come to our church. I mean, we tend to have these little party and party politics and divided mindsets and stuff. And, and we end up missing out on, I think, the most considerable piece of Jesus's ministry was that when he looked upon the crowds, he saw compassion and felt compassion. And that word compassion is a very intense thing. It's like he basically he felt it in his gut. And so when we read this passage, yes, we're going to look at a a miracle that Jesus did of feeding the 5,000, but we're also going to look at the Jesus that we need to make sure that we see and know and that we plug into and emulate. So would you join me as we read his word together as we stand in honor of his word, Mark chapter number six, verses 30 to 44, and this is the word of the Lord. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when he went ashore, he saw the great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like a sheep, like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And he went and it grew late and his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them? Uh, He said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in the groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish, and those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. 
The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord stands forever. You may be seated. So you may remember last week that when I told you when I put a sermon together that I have three basic questions that I ask. And one is, Lord, what are you saying? What are you actually saying in the text? It's not about what I wanted to say, but it's about what's being said. The other is, Lord, how, how is this received by those who originally heard it? Jesus was not talking to 21st century Westerners. He was talking to those that were living in the Middle East. And it's good for us to remember that. But the third question then was, how would you have us apply this now? And there's actually a fourth question. It may be related to the third one, and it's this. How would someone in 2022 receive this passage? Because we are now living in an age where there is scientific and medical advances, the likes of which 20 years ago we wouldn't have really thought. Um, 30, 40 years ago, the fact that we could have the entire Library of Congress accessed by our phones may not have been anything we could have absolutely conceived. In fact, up until 1880, the amount of information we had in 1880 was about the same amount of information that Moses had. So from 1880 until now, there has been this this movement of advances that um, the, the likes of which couldn't have been imagined 100, 150 years ago. But we talk about contextualization. When we're talking about contextualizing something, what we're talking about is not changing the Bible to adjust the age, but what we're talking about is helping people understand what the Bible is trying to say, even with all of the things that are going on. The miracles that are talked about now may not be very well received by people who are like Neil deGrasse Tyson or Carl Sagan. They may actually um, kind of shun the idea completely. But really what we need to be doing is we need to be recognizing the fact that there is a God in heaven that created everything out of nothing and by his word. And so if that is the case, then cannot this God do anything? Is there anything, as one passage said, is there anything too hard for him? So, so no. So we know this peace. We know the one who is there that is that is working and moving and creating and changing. And so we want to make sure that we are listening to what Spurgeon said a number of years ago, that we shall not adjust our Bible to the age. But before we have done with it, by God's grace, we shall adjust the age to the Bible. I like that. And I think that's what we're all about here. In the 19th century, there was a, a movement that arose that really questioned all of the supernatural aspects of the Bible. And that's, that kind of went on and is still going on now. So when I went to uh, a Christian college down in South Florida, it's since changed now to more where they actually believe the Bible is the Bible. But when I went to that Christian college in the early 90s, there were so many young men and women that would walk out of those classes because these men were believing the lack of the supernatural peace in the Bible. They would walk out of those classes either denying the faith or going into a ministry where they didn't really think the Bible was the Bible. And when I went to seminary before it changed as well, I would walk out of all of those classes as well knowing that those professors did not really believe the Bible. They questioned really whether Moses exists. They questioned whether Jonah uh, was really swallowed by that great fish. They questioned the resurrection 
of Jesus because they were saying it was, he either passed out or dogs ate him or something or something or something or something. And this was one of those things that was going on here was what they would look at this passage and they would say, well, Jesus really didn't do this, that there was someone that was kind of behind him that was feeding him up, feeding up through his robe and coming out of his arm. And that's how he was feeding all of that. It was like one big assembly, invisible assembly line that nobody saw, right? I mean, it's just absurd. Because sometimes when you try to fix the Bible, you come up with something that is even more ridiculous and that, that they say the Bible is. But we know, because this is how God operates, we know that God is there moving and working and helping us to be able to recognize who he is and what he's done and what he is attempting to teach us in the midst of this process. The last passage we talked about was from Mark 6 verses um, 14 to 29, and there was a feast that was going on. It was a feast with Herod, and Herod had all of his buddies and all the higher-ups that were there, and, the, and that feast was there to impress some people. His daughter comes out and, and dances in a very sensual way, and then his wife says, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Now we have a different feast that's going on, and it's not the higher-ups. It's the regular common people that are there trying to figure out who this Jesus is, but knowing that he's somebody. And, with the, and it wasn't his old cronies that were with him. It was his apostles. And he was teaching his apostles and going to show that he was sending them on a mission to show all the people after he was gone, after he would be ascended back to the Father, who he was all about, and he would be operating in his own power. When we look at this passage, Jesus reminds us of some important parts of ministry. And the three that we're going to talk about is rest and compassion and reliance. So let's look at verses 30 to 32 and talk about the rest component, which may surprise you. Look at verses 30 to 32 again. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. So Jesus had sent them out, and as emissaries of him, they were commissioned to bring back a report of all that they had done. And and, and it was an accountability piece. And it's accountability for us is that when we're being sent out by Jesus, then what we do is that we make sure that we are being accountable to what he has already said in his word. We can't just go and do whatever we want and say, well, Jesus is blessing me because I made a decision a long time ago. We go and do what he has called us to do. And we go back and, and recognize that we are being accountable to him. But in verse 31, it says, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. When Jesus sent them out two by two, this was a hard task for them to do. And they couldn't do it in their strength. But even in their own strength, they find times where they absolutely needed to rest. I think sometimes we get into ministry and we think well, we've got to be going all the time. And we sometimes feel guilty for taking those rests. Keep in mind, did not Jesus institute a Sabbath for us to rest? In the seventh month of every year, that's when they had the lion's share of, their, of the festivals in the, Jewish, uh, in the Jewish realm. That's when they had the lion's share of their festivals. On the seventh year, they would give a land the rest. And on the seventh time, seventh year, going into the 50th year, when that 49th year was completed, they would not only give the land rest, but they would set the slaves free and return property to its original owner. Rest has always been a part of the rhythm of God's people. And when we start feeling guilty about taking rest, and maybe I'm talking to myself right now. Last week we had three funerals. And be, you know, having to, and getting to talk to the families, and, and I, I tend to feel what everybody else is feeling. 
And so when I'm feeling that and the three funerals we had and I was feeling the grief that everybody was experiencing in the room, that when the funeral uh, on Saturday or Sunday afternoon, when it concluded, I went home and there's football on. And that's just what I tend to do on a Sunday night is that I go home. I don't care, I don't care who's playing. I, I'm going to go home and I'm going to watch some football and just kind of decompress. And I'm in the middle of the second quarter and I'm doing, I'm doing this number and I can't stay awake. And Cindy's, Cindy's like, why don't you just go to bed? And so I did. And I slept from 745 till 645. I mean, I, I don't sleep 11 hours. I get seven or eight tight ones. I realize I know I need the rest because if I don't get rest, I am not, not only good for me, I'm not good for my family, I'm not good for the church. And so I need to make sure that I'm taking those Sabbath times, whether it's on, just on that Sunday and just resting there, or there may be little Sabbaths that I need to take during the week, recognizing how my body is. It's a marathon, everybody. It's not a sprint. And so if we need to take those times, take those times. You may be able to do it in five minutes. You may need 30 minutes. You may need a vacation. Some of you, you don't do vacations. But vacation, you know what the word vacation means? It means to vacate. And it's really good. When was talking about going to Hawaii. And normally I have a little notebook where I'm sketching out sermon stuff or I'm reading a book. You know what I did on my vacation? I vacated. It was wonderful. I survived. I did it. I couldn't believe it. But we need to be doing that. We need to make sure because Jesus is telling his disciples, come alongside and rest. That is an, just as an important part of ministry as the activity. Right? So we, I, I want to make sure you're with me on that because sometimes we don't like to do that. But this is what Jesus has called us to do, this rest he's called us to do. Oh, and by the way, every so often I send out little emails and I just encourage you all to get rest on a Saturday night. Don't stay up and watch Perry Mason. Don't stay up and watch Sven Gulli. Don't stay up and watch those late night West Coast games and all because what's going to happen is you're, you're not going to be able to receive the word as well because you haven't rested. But if you're rested and alert, it's amazing how much a better preacher I become. It's amazing, right? Something to think about. But the second part, too, is that Jesus reminds us that an important part of the ministry is compassion. And so in verses 37, or 34 rather, we start getting into, into this. Well, let's go back to verse 33. Now, many of them saw, saw, them coming and re- saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when he went ashore, and here we are, he saw a great crowd. I'm going to pause right there. I know there's a comma. There's a comma in my Bible, and there's a comma in your Bible. So how would you be if you were like looking forward to getting some rest? I can't wait to get some rest. I'm going to have, some, have a little me time. I'm going to get the little tea out there. I'm going to get my coffee. I'm going to get my newspaper. I'm going to get my Bible. I'm gonna, and I'm going to not. And all of a sudden. Or doodle do do doodle do And that comes up. What do you do? gonna have a little me time <laughs> i have a little me time some of you are giving me gestures you got to tell me what those are all about afterwards that's awesome but got, and so what do you do okay so jesus jesus human being he fell asleep in the boat remember when that was going on so jesus was a was a full human being he needed some rest but he saw the people coming and he said instead of him getting frustrated i think the disciples got frustrated we're gonna see that in a little bit 
but he had compassion on him. And that compassion, that comes from, that comes from his, the, the innards, the gut. He, it just hit him, and it hit him hard. And he says that he had compassion on them all because they were, they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, that doesn't make sense because they had the Pharisees, right? They had the Pharisees, the Sadducees. They had these religious leaders that were there, that were supposed to be there, guiding them and helping them and moving them along and all that, and yet they weren't because they didn't want to mess themselves up with the common people. In other words, Philip Keller wrote a book on Psalm 23, and the title of the book was, They Smell Like Sheep, because that's what shepherds are supposed to be. The shepherds are supposed to smell like sheep. The Pharisees did not want to smell like sheep. Pharisees did not want to mess with the riffraff and the, and the mob. All the way back in Ezekiel 34, this was already happening. And it's happening even now, where sometimes pastors get so removed from their people that they become really just speakers and preachers and motivational talkers. But in Ezekiel 34, in verse 1, to about verse 6, it says this, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled, you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered all over the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Obviously, this analogy is not just about shepherds and sheep, literal shepherds, literal sheep. But this is what was going on with the leaders of Israel. This is what was going on in Jesus' time. This tends to be what can go on now, that we have to be very, very careful that we are not simply, that for us, that we're not simply preachers. We're pastors, we're shepherds. And we need to make sure that we are doing what we are called to do because what a sad thing to know is that God's people had no shepherd among them. Well, that's why in Ezekiel 34, 11, just a few bit down, it says, for thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. Now, I got to say this, your pastors aren't always going to get it right. There's one of me, there's a lot of you, we're not always going to get it right. But you do have a great shepherd that is always with you that will always get it right. Right? So while we try, please know that we don't, don't substitute us for Jesus. We're not Jesus. There, we already got a Jesus, and he is more than enough. And so I hope that when you look at this, Jesus is constantly trying to get them to where they need to be. And look at what he does. He says they were like a sheep without a shepherd, end of verse 34, and he began to teach them many things. That's how he was feeding them. And that's how shepherds do. They feed their sheep, and that's what we do every morning, every Sunday morning. We are feeding the sheep with the word of the Lord that will last you throughout all of eternity. And he goes on to talk about that it grew late, and his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is late. Send them away and go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy them something to eat. So Jesus here is, is recognizing what is going on with these folks. He sees the hour of the day. He recognizes that they've been following him for so long that they haven't eaten. Jesus knows what's go, what was going on with them, and Jesus knows what's going on with you. 
He knows every single issue that you are dealing with right now, whether it's a physical issue, an emotional issue, a relational issue, mental, spiritual issue. He knows. And sometimes at the, at the end, we're going to be having Lord's Supper. We're going to offer an opportunity for you to confess and repent of sin. I know there's some of you that are maybe saying, I can't confess my sin. I can't voice that to God because I'm too ashamed. Let me tell you this. He already knows. So you might as well just get it over with. You might as well just get it over with. Confess it. Repent of it. Have some trusted friends that you can talk to. Confess that to them. Repent. Of, not, not to them, but in the part of repentance, they can help keep you accountable. He already knows what's going on. And he already knew when he died on the cross for you. But he loves you enough to come where you are, to take you to where you need to be, and to continually work in you by the Holy Spirit to get you to where he would have you. His, his work in Romans 8, he talks about that he is working to conform all of us into the image of his son. So not only does he know what's going on with you, dear Christian, well, everybody, but dear Christian, he's working in you. And for those of you who have not trusted in Christ yet, he may be drawing you, and you may be resisting the white knuckle disease, right? You may be resisting, but don't come to him and see all the joy and see the hope and freedom that you can have in Christ. So that's the compassion part. Wow, aren't you glad that he's like that? Aren't you glad he is such a compassionate savior to you? And that leads to the third one, that Jesus reminds us that an important part of ministry is reliance. We have nothing. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, James tells us. So when, when he is working in us, he provides all that we need. He provides himself, and he provides all that we need here and in eternity. So we see in verse 37, but he answered them, you give them something to eat. This is where he is turning the tide, and he is saying, okay, you're saying that there's something going on. Let's see what you can do about it. And they looked at the, the, the issue that was going on. And he said, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? That's eight months wages. Can we really do this? And of course, Jesus is putting them in a position to where they, they're recognizing that not only did they need, re- by their resting and not being able to revive like that, that they're not God. Sleep and rest reminds us that we're not God, but also the fact that we can't provide everything at all times for all things, reminds us that we're not God either. And so he says, shall we go and buy denarii worth of, of bread and give it to 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, well, let's check our assets. What do we got? Uh, how many loaves do you have? Well, uh, five loaves and two fish. Lunch. Got a lunch for a, for a, for a boy. That's what he had. You see that in other, in other parallel passages in the Gospels. And so he says, well, then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and by fifties. So Jesus was about to do something, and it's important for us to understand the flow of how the Bible is laid out. So if you remember 
If, if you're familiar with the first five books of the Old Testament, um, you may remember and going through the book of Numbers. And, the, and in Numbers, they were sitting there and the, and the people were complaining as they were prone to do. They were complaining that there was nothing to eat. And so when they're walking through the desert for 40 years, there weren't a lot of restaurants. There weren't a lot of convenience stores. I take that back. There were no restaurants. There were no convenience stores. You know, we, we, you know, we want a, a little Debbie or some peanut M&Ms. We can just go up to the Walgreens and just get, get that, and we're fine. You know, they didn't have any of that. So there was a complete reliance on that, and the people of Israel didn't want to rely like that. They would have rather been back in slavery in Egypt, eating the leeks and the onions and all of that, because their tummies were hurting and their tummies were grumbling. And God sent a wind, and all of a sudden there was all this quail that was going to feed. Now keep in mind, it said there were 600,000 men that were walking through the desert. So you add that up. Count women and children in there. There was likely about 2 million people that were wandering through the desert. And God brought a wind and brought all of this quail and provided all of this meat, all of this protein for them to be able to endure the journey. And he was doing that the whole time. The manna. Well, they started getting sick of manna. And God provided the water and they started getting sick of that because they wanted it when they wanted it. Fast forward 2,000 years and now well about 1500 years and now all of these people are basically out in the middle of nowhere their wilderness and how are they going to get something to eat they didn't have money to be able to do it they didn't have enough time to be able to get back home to prepare their meal because the sun was going down and so now we see that there's jesus that's here and jesus is telling them to do like they did in the wilderness and to sit in these companies of of 50 and 100 like they did in like they did in the wilderness in the old testament and so if you knew the Bible and you've been hearing these stories in synagogue all the time, you're like, whoa, 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 this, is, this feels familiar. I've heard about these stories. What's he doing? And then he says to go do it. He goes on. He says, so they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Verse 41, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing and he broke the loaves and he gave it to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate. It wasn't like, like the little Lord's Supper cup. Where you don't hope you're not expecting a, a full meal out of that little Lord's Supper thing that we're about to give you. But they ate and they were satisfied. They weren't, they weren't hungry anymore. Is this the Jesus that is the bread of life, just like the one in the Old Testament that gave the manna? And satisfied his people physically to show that he was one who is sovereign over all that could satisfy them spiritually as well. That's that's the Jesus is the fulfillment of the greater Moses. What was going on in the wilderness back then was going on here and now, and Jesus was setting up these environments to show them number one, he's ruler over all. And he's setting up these environments to show, I will provide for my people. It is nothing for me to do this. It was nothing for God to provide the manna and the quail back then. And it's nothing for me to provide for it now. But I'll tell you what is something. For him to provide for your salvation was not nothing. There was an actual physical act he had to do in order for your salvation to be satisfied. 
He had to come and live for these 33 years on earth. The last three years he came in ministry. He never sinned once. He was holy God. He was the Son of God and God the Son walking around on the earth as his son, yes, doing miracles, yes, teaching, but there was something else that had to be done. Our sin had to be satisfied. Our guilt had to be satisfied. And so on that bloody day, he went to the cross to atone for our sins so that we might be satisfied and God's wrath and God's justice might be satisfied. The, bre- the broken bread that we're going to be taking is a representation of the broken body. The cup that we're getting ready to take is a representation of and a symbol of the shed blood that was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. See, Jesus did a fantastic miracle here, didn't he? Feeding, feeding 15 to 20,000 people. I know it says 5,000, but they're only counting the men. 15 to 20,000 people. And by his own miracle and by his own, by his own providential work, he satisfied them all. But you know what would happen the next morning? They'd be hungry again. And, and by lunch, they'd be hungry again. And by dinner, they'd be hungry again. So was Jesus just trying to say, I'm showing you something really cool to be able to feed you for one meal? Or am I trying to show you that I am the bread of life where you will never have to hunger again? Spiritually. Yeah, but I want, I want something to eat. Passes through the body. But when we partake of Christ, we will never hunger again. Will we go through struggles? Yes, but he is with us. Will we, will we blow it and sin sometimes? Yes, but the Holy Spirit is there to convict us, to get us back on track. We're not left on our own. He said he'd never leave us or forsake us. That he is showing us that he will handle, he will handle it all as far as what happens to you spiritually. There's nothing we can do. In fact, we've contributed to our own demise. Christ comes along and brings us to where we need to be. Is that where you are? I'm, I'm wondering if that is exactly where you are. I'm wondering what, um, where you are when things don't quite go your way. Do you get angry at God, or do you remember what Hudson Taylor may have said? Uh, what Hudson Taylor said, and you may remember that God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. We've got budgets that's coming up, and I think sometimes we, not all of us, but we get into this idea, God, you're not going to be able to supply because we're seeing how things are going. But if we're doing things in God's way, according to God's will, he'll provide. If we're faithful with little, he'll make us faithful with much. So let's be faithful with what we've got. John Newton said, thus when we think of ourselves in the greatest safety, we are no less exposed to danger than when all seems to be conspiring to destroy us. The divine providence that is sufficient to deliver us in our utmost extremity is equally necessary in the most peaceful situation. In other words, regardless of where you're at, you may think I'm peaceful, I don't need God. You need him just as much as if you are in chaos. That's who he is. In fact, we may need him more because sometimes when, we, when things are going peaceful, that's when we don't think I, we, don't, we need him anymore. I got this. Be careful not to rely on your own strength. We will be observing the Lord's Supper right now. And I, I want to just say a few things to you before we begin to observe it because this is Jesus providing for us. You think that was a miracle? 
what we just talked about, the miracle of rescuing you from your sin and your deadness and your lostness and your blindness, that is a miracle of far greater proportion. We can feed people. Not like this, but we can feed people. We can't rescue ourselves. And we can't rescue anybody else. But there is one who did on our behalf. His name is Jesus. And so as we come... Two things I want to just remind you of. One, if you, if you read, and we've read this before from 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27 to 34, where it talks about the danger of partaking in the Lord's Supper and you not being a follower of Jesus. If you're not a follower of Jesus, and we would even say, if you haven't followed in believer's baptism, we would just say, because that's the most basic piece of obedience that God's called us to do. And if we're not willing to do that, then what we need to do is let that, let the actual act of, of taking the Lord's Supper pass us by and use that time to confess and repent of not trusting in Christ. And maybe this will be the morning that you do. Maybe the symbols of the broken body and shed blood for you, will the Holy Spirit will so apprehend you that this would be a morning where while everyone else has taken the Lord's Supper, the Lord is coming and taking hold of you. If there's unconfessed sin, we're going to give you an opportunity to confess of that so that you can take the Lord's Supper well and take it rightly. In 1 um, John 1, verses 5 to 10, this is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Are you hearing the word of the Lord this morning? But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. You may believe that you are able to take this without confessing sin because you feel like you've got it all together. Then you've made God a liar. If you're walking in unrepentant darkness and saying you're a follower of Jesus then you are not following the path of righteousness and you need to take this opportunity that we're going to provide for you to confess and repent. Diane, would you mind uh, coming to the piano? And so well, this is what we're going to do. We have, when we used to pass out the plate, the, the plates, um, which we won't be doing for a while, open containers, hands on, on everything. So that's, that's the rationale, that's the reason behind it. But one of the things I believe that is missing and has been missing that we have not provided for you is an opportunity to meditate on the word of the Lord and to have a, have a true extended opportunity to confess your sins. So this is what I'm going to ask you to do. Um, one, I want to make sure that everybody has, a, has this container. If you don't, Bill is in the back. Would you please raise your hand so we make sure that you have it? Here, okay, we've got a couple. And, uh, yeah, Tracy, we got that. Okay. 
And what we're going to do is to, as Diane plays um, through two or three stanzas of this particular hymn that she has chosen, we're going to give you an opportunity to say, Lord, I, I confess of this sin. I confess of my apathy. I confess of what I've said, what I've done, what I've thought. Take this opportunity to do this because he says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive them. Now, that's a promise that we can take to the bank, and I want to make sure that I'm taking it to that spiritual bank. You, you, can, you can confess those sins where you are. We have these steps that you can use as, a, as an altar of prayer. However you want to do this, don't miss this opportunity to get right with the Lord and to be able to participate in the Lord's Supper. So let's confess our sins together.
this is what I would like for us to do. Diane played a wonderful song that I think would be good for us to sing. It's a song called Let Us Break Bread Together. And the way that is broken down is the first verse is let us break bread together on our knees. The second verse is let us drink the cup together on our knees. The last one is let us praise God together on our knees. So I'm going to read a passage of Scripture that it pertains to the bread. And if we can, and if you know the passage, if you know the stanza, I should say, then sing that with me about let us breaking bread together on our knees. But let me read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, which says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's sing this first stanza. You don't mind. Thank you. Let us break bread together on our knees. Let us break bread together on our knees. When I fall on belong to Christ, then this belongs to you. For the cup, which represents the blood of our Lord Jesus that was shed for us for the forgiveness of sins, says this, in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So let's sing the second stanza. Let us drink the cup together. belong to Christ, this belongs to you. Let's praise God together on this last verse. Let us praise God together on our knees. Let's sing that church. Let's sing it. Let us praise
We now sing our hymn of commitment.